If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have uh, Bibles for you out in the lobby, and you're, you're welcome to use those this morning. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that home with you as a gift from us to you so that you have a copy of God's Word to read on your own. If you're new with us this morning, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we have been making our way through the book of Romans, uh, not quickly. Uh, this is uh, our second year in the book. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 12, and this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 4 through 8. Um, we've been taking breaks along the way uh, when appropriate, when the Lord leads us to address something that we need to address, and when I'm out of town. So I'm grateful for Jonathan Mitchell bringing the word last week preaching from the book of Psalms, a very encouraging, challenging message for us uh, as my family and I uh, had some time away for Thanksgiving out of town. But um, because we're coming back into Romans, I want to kind of catch us up on where we are in this book. We're right at the outset of chapter 12. The first two verses of chapter 12 are really a turning point in this letter. The first 11 chapters are what we might call in a general sense the doctrinal portion of this letter, generally speaking. Whereas chapters 12 through 16, we're right at the, in the middle here, but chapters 12 through 16 are commonly known as more of the practical section. How should we live now based on this theological foundation that Paul has been laying for us in the first 11 chapters? In chapters 1 through 11, Paul is essentially presenting the gospel to the Romans. He's showing them, and by way of consequence, he's showing us our great and dire need for a Savior by explaining that we have no righteousness of our own and that that's bad news But because without that righteousness, we cannot be made right with God. And the news got worse because he says not only do we not have righteousness, but we can't invent it. We can't earn it by right doing or performing religious acts or following the law or anything along those lines. And so the bad news got worse. And because of this, we understand from Paul that we now rightly and justly deserve judgment and punishment and condemnation because of our sin. But... Then he presented to us the good news. He went on to explain that our gracious and loving, merciful God has made the righteousness of his Son available to us by faith. That by putting our faith in him, by putting our trust, our hope, our only hope, to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against him, in placing our hope and our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ alone, rather than our own performance for God, that when we put our faith in Jesus as Savior, then the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect obedience to the law, is credited to us by faith. And then Paul went on to describe what that looks like and what that means for us in, in terms of our release from condemnation. Then he went on in chapters 9 through 11 to describe how this happens and how God is completely justified in saving those whom he chooses to save. And in all of this, all throughout chapters 1 through 11, we are confronted over and over again with the glories of God 
in the gospel. And so we get to the end of that. We get to the end of chapter 11, and rightly, Paul just erupts in spontaneous worship by saying, beginning in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory and honor forever. Amen. And so he just erupts after going, after being just in awe of the glories of God in the gospel, he erupts in spontaneous worship. And then after that expression of awe and worship, Paul begins chapter 12. And remember, there's not chapter divisions in the original manuscripts. He just goes straight on into the next verse. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, In other words, in light of the glories of God as we've seen in the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, I appeal to you therefore in light of the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or logical and rational worship. In other words, in light of the glories of God in the gospel, to which Paul erupts in spontaneous worship, part of the rational worship responsible and reasonable worship that that is required of us is to live our lives now as a sacrifice unto God. To daily, moment by moment, offer all of who we are to God as a sacrifice, not to pay him back, as if we could ever pay him back for the grace he's extended to us on the cross, but by way of worshiping him and thanking him both for who he is And what he has done for us. And as lives presented to God as living sacrifice, we will, according to the next verse, verse 2, we will resist being conformed to the patterns and standards of this world. And instead, we will be transformed by the renewal of our mind, by being changed from the inside out, as we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. So so that, that was verses 1 and 2. And those two verses of chapter 12 set the backdrop for everything that's going to come in chapters 12 through 16. Because what we're going to find in chapters 12 through 16, Paul's going to hammer us over and over again with a lot of imperative verbs, commands. We're to do this. We're to act this way. We're to relate to people this way, over and over again. And all of those imperative commands are to fall under that rubric of Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not be conformed to the patterns and standards of this world, but be transformed. And in so doing, we will live our lives as a sacrificial offering unto God for who he is and what he's done for us. As a means of thanking him and as a means of worshiping him. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this this began, this living our life as a transformed Life begins in verse 3. While verses 1 and 2 set the backdrop for the rest of the letter, verse 3 of chapter 12 sets the backdrop for the rest of this chapter. Because what we're going to find in chapter 12 is Paul talking about how we're to live this transformed life specifically as we seek to relate to people. 
other people both inside the church and outside the church, that we're not to take on the, the, we're not to be conformed to the way the world says we're to relate to people inside and outside the church, but we're to be transformed and to live our lives as a sacrifice, relating to people inside and outside the church differently in a different sort of way. And you'll recall from last time in verse 3, Paul reminded us that that begins with how we view ourselves. That starts with how we view ourselves. Because if I view my, if I have an arrogant view, if I have a prideful view of myself, if I am the center of my own universe, then I'm going to have a real hard time rightly relating to other people, whether they're inside the church or outside the church. And so Paul told us in verse 3 to have a humble view of self, to not think too highly of ourselves, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. And this sets the stage for the remainder of chapter 12, where Paul talks about relating to others. So we're going to read verses 4 through 8, which is the text that we're going to focus on this morning. And here we see Paul beginning to talk about how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. And how the church can properly function with all of these different members united together in one body. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read. I'm going to begin with verse 3 by way of context, but we're going to focus on verses 4 through 8 this morning. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be able to hold into our hands this copy of your word, and we're grateful that you have, in your divine wisdom and strength, you have protected this throughout the ages so that we know that what we hold in our hands to be the very breath of God We want to treat it as such. Would you speak to us, Lord, through this? You have spoken. Help us to understand. Give us your spirit. Not just so that we might understand it and have a head knowledge of it, but so that it might change our life. So that you might use it, the word, this morning to make us look a little bit more like Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness, Just pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 4, Paul introduces the metaphor of the body. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So he's talking about the body. So this is simple anatomy right? Uh, We all have a physical body. Each of us in here has a physical body. And each of us in here have 
parts of that body. We have lots of different parts to our bodies. Paul calls them members of the body. We would call them body parts. So there's two things about our physical body that Paul puts forth in verse 4. The first is that the members of our body find their identity as being a part of the body. It's kind of simple, but he, he does this to teach us something else about the body of Christ. So the members of our body find their identity as a part of our body. We have arms, we have legs, we have shoulders. All of these, Paul would say, are members of our body. They are body parts, but they are not bodies unto themselves, right? They are parts of our bodies. They are members of our one body. So there's a unity that exists between our arms and our legs, our ears and our noses. And that unity is that they are all members of the same body. This arm has the distinction of being one of two arms that are a member of the body of Ken Rucker. This leg, likewise, is a member of my body. Same for all of our body parts. Their primary identity is not in their individual identity, but their primary identity is in their connection to the body itself as a member of our bodies. The second thing that Paul teaches us about bodies in verse 4, not only that the members of the body find their primary identity in the body itself, but also, secondly, the members of our body are all unique and have different functions. Again, verse 4 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Again, simple anatomy, right? The arm doesn't have the same function as the leg. The, the eyes don't have the same function as the ears. If the arm decided it wanted to be more like a leg, then how could we hold things? How could we turn the pages of Scripture? How could we do things like that? If our legs wanted to be, they got jealous of the arm and wanted to be more like an arm, then how could we walk and stand and move? There is a uniqueness to each of our body parts, and each is important. In fact, you could say, I believe, but based on what Paul says, is that the, the diversity of our body parts is essential to our body operating properly. So that's the analogy, right? That's the analogy in verse 4. We've got one body, and we've got many body parts, many members of our body. And the individual members of our body part find their primary, primary identity not in themselves as individual body parts, but in their connection to the one body. And in addition to that, the body parts are all different. And the diversity of body parts and the diversity of their functions allows the body to operate properly. So that's the metaphor to what is it referring. Verse 5, Paul says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So who's the we that he's talking about here? So, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Who is the, who is the we in the verse? Paul says the we are one body in Christ. And so whoever the we are, they are in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? This is essential because if we're not in Christ, then we're not part of the we here. So what does it mean to be in Christ? 
We saw this phrase back in that awesome part of, oh, the, the, all of Romans 8 was awesome, but that, those first two verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so Paul there was talking, you remember, about the need for us to have the righteousness of Jesus rather than our own worthless, useless attempts at at righteousness. When we come to God, if we come to God, on the basis of our own worthless and useless attempts at being righteous, then we are still under God's condemnation because of our sin and rebellion against him. And that's not good news, right? But when we come to God, as those who were baptized this morning testified before you, as when we come to God robed with the righteousness of Jesus, which is ours by faith, then we're no longer under the condemnation of our sin. We've been justified, which means to be declared righteous, not on the basis of our own worthless, useless attempts at righteousness. Because the Bible says that, that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Instead, we come to him by faith, robed with the righteousness of Jesus, credited to our account by faith, because then and only then we are set free from the law of sin and death, because now we are in Christ. Paul also used this same phrase. He uses it a lot of places, but one of my favorite places is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have gone away. Behold, new things have come. So to be in Christ means to be that new creation, to be united to Christ by faith in him as Lord and Savior. And friend, this is the great dividing line of humanity right here. There are only two types of people in the world. And for that matter, there are only two types of people in this very room here this morning. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, in his finished work on the cross, in his death and burial and resurrection as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin against God, our rebellion against God, if you placed your faith in anything other than Jesus or in anything in addition to Jesus, if you've placed your hope for rescue in your church attendance or in a baptism or in any kind of religious act or performance or in just trying to be a good person and trying to, to, to be a good Christian or in trying to fight against evil and sin and temptation and, and doing things on your own, if you've placed your hope in any of that stuff, anything other than Christ alone, as your only hope, then the Bible tells us that you're not in Christ. And that is a desperately dangerous place to be because that means that you're still under the condemnation of your own sin. But there is good news because there's another kind of person that is here in this room, those who are in Christ. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, 
You, you, you may have done some religious things. You, you've attended church, but you're not placing your hope in that. You're doing that stuff because you love Jesus. You're doing that stuff because you're overwhelmed by the grace that he's extended to you in Christ. You're doing that stuff because you love God and you want to honor him and you want to worship him. Not because you're trying to earn something from him. Not because you're trying to perform for try to earn a grade from him. No, you've placed your faith in Jesus's finished work on the cross as your only hope. Then you are in Christ and you are robed with the righteousness of Jesus, not your own righteousness, although his righteousness now has organically become yours by faith. And so now you stand free freed from the condemnation that we all deserve because of our sin and, and rebellion. But beyond that, not only are you, do, you not now, do you now have no condemnation for your sin, which is Romans 8, 1 is about, but also this means that you're now part of the we in verse 5. You're part of this we. So the we of verse 5 are believers in Jesus Christ. He says, we, though many, are one body in Christ. So Friends, what he's talking about here is the church. The church as the body of Christ. Now there's some debate here as to which aspect of the church Paul is referring to in verse 5. Whether he's referring to the, the local church there in Rome, the believers who have come to faith in Jesus Christ that are gathering together in the ancient city of Rome to worship Jesus, or whether he's talking about the universal church, all believers of all times and all places. On the one hand, we know that this whole letter was written to the local church in Rome that gathers there in Rome. But we also know that Paul's not a member of that church, right? He hadn't even been there yet. But clearly he's a part of the we in verse 5, or else he would have said, you, though many, are one body in Christ. But he doesn't. He says, we, though many, are one body in Christ. So I don't think you can draw a hard line of distinction here. As you read Paul's letters, you see him go back and forth as he refers to the church, sometimes referring to the church in a, in a local setting, Sometimes he's referring to the universal church, all believers of all times and all places. So I think it's really both. If we are in Christ, we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what fellowship you're a part of, what local church you're a part of, there is a sense in which we are united together because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. We're part of the universal body of Christ, the universal church. And so we are individually members one of another. We've got many family and friends that are here for the baptisms this morning that are members perhaps of other churches, but I can call you brother and I can call you sister and you can call me brother, but please don't call me sister. But we're united, right? We're, 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 we're clear on gender here. We're united in Christ because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. We're brother and sister in Christ. But then believers gather together in local churches. And oddly enough, on the testimony of the book of Acts, we learn that the entrance into the local church is baptism itself, as we saw um, pictured here this morning. A beautiful picture of that. In Acts, we see, it says, this, this many people came to faith, they believed, were baptized, and they were added to the number. What was the number that they were added to? It was the number of that local church that they were a part of. 
And then Paul goes on in, other, in his other letters to talk about how the, the, he placed shepherds and elders over them. And so there was a definite number of those to whom were accountable for those sheep. And so they were baptized into that, and they were part of the local body of Christ. And so I think it's both. So the church is the body of Christ, and it's one body. And Paul says we are all individually members one of another in that body. So what's Paul trying to communicate to his readers here with this metaphor? Well, let's think about those two things from verse 4 that we learned about the physical body that he said. Number one, that the members of our body find their primary identity in the body itself, in that one body, not in them individually. And secondly, that the members of our body are all unique and have different functions. So in illustrating the church as this one body in Christ, Paul is telling us something here about both unity and diversity within the church. First of all, he's telling us that the individual members of the body of Christ, we ought to find our primary identity in being a part of the church itself, not merely as individuals, but our primary identity is in the church. If I were to cut my arm off, I know that's morbid, but if I were to cut my arm off and there was an arm, my arm is lying up here, what use would that arm be? It wouldn't be much use at all, right? Just as my arm has no purpose and is ultimately incomplete apart from its connection to the rest of my body, so we as individual believers in Jesus Christ, we have no hear me on this, we have no kingdom purpose and we are spiritually incomplete, ultimately incomplete, apart from our connection to the rest of the body of Christ. Now this is absolutely countercultural. So this is why verses 1 and 2 are going to come into play all throughout chapters 12 and through 16. And it's going to come into play here because this is countercultural. That's not what our culture says, right? Our culture, the American culture, says it's all about the individual. But in kingdom culture, in God's kingdom, it's all about the body of Christ, the church. And the individual members of that body are important, but they are not ultimate. In God's economy, what is primary is the body of Christ, the church, the believers who gather together as the bride of Christ. So I think here we begin to see why it's so important for Paul to exhort us in verse 3 to not think so highly of ourselves, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Because think about it. If we think, of, think too highly of ourselves, if we're arrogant, if we're prideful, if we're not thinking with sober judgment, instead we've got this lofty view of ourselves, then we're never going to appreciate our primary identity as individual members who are part of a body, this one body that is united together in faith. Instead, we will elevate self above body. And then we're going to be prime targets for the mantras of our culture, which says, look out for self. What's most important is you, that you don't need anybody else and nobody needs you. But as those who are being transformed by the renewal of our minds, 
We resist being conformed to the pattern and standards of our world in this regard. We reject the culture's press on us to make us think that we, ourselves, individuals, are primary. And instead, by the renewal of our mind, because of what God's word says is true about us, instead, we elevate the body of believers. We elevate the church above ourselves and think of the church first and not ourselves. And then, at the end of verse 5, Paul adds another element to this. He says in verse 5 at the end of it, that we're individually members one of another, which speaks to us about our mutual dependence on one another and the need for us to take responsibility for one another within the body of Christ. It's huge. But again, this is counterculture. Our, our culture doesn't say that, right? Our culture says we are responsible for whom? Ourselves. And certainly we need to take responsibility for ourselves, but Paul says here, we are individually members one of another. And so I have a responsibility for you and you have a responsibility for me. We're responsible for one another. I have a responsibility for you as one of the elders, but as a fellow member. And as a fellow member, you have a responsibility for me and my walk with Jesus as well. And you have responsibility for the other covenant members in this body. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that? Your responsibility for others in this church. That's part of Anybody ever talk about, you know, hey, membership's not in the Bible. Actually, it's right here in Romans chapter 12. It says being members of the body, right? But this is part of why membership is so important, not just so that the elders and shepherds will know those whom they have to give an account before God for, but also so you know who you're responsible for. Have you, have you thought of it? Have you thought of church that way? That you are responsible for one another, for their walk with Jesus. This is part of why church discipline is so important. You know, 99% of church discipline is, brother, let's talk about what's going on in your life right here. And getting into one another's business and talking through things and challenging one another and exhorting one another and confronting one another when, when we need to be confronted. We have responsibility for one another. And, and, and you know, we, we divide into our base groups and we meet in our base group throughout the week, and that is the primary way in which this is going to be lived out. But listen to me, you're responsible for every other member of this church. I don't know how guys do it who have these large churches, and, and, and they're responsible for giving account for shepherding thousands of people. But I also don't know how the members do it. You're responsible, church. If you're a member here, there are lots of folks that aren't members here. You're responsible for the other members in your church. But if you're a member of New Branch, you are responsible. You are members one of another for each other. How are you going to do that? And what does that look like? I like how the writer of Hebrews describes this in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, then let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can you do that? This is something for you to flesh out in your base group. How can you stir up 
love in the people that God has placed around you? How can you stir up love in them? How can you stir them up to good works and good deeds? How can you do any of that if you're not invested in relationship with them? That, that, that's dependent here. You, you can't do any of this stirring up if you're not invested in community and real, genuine, biblical relationships with one another. So how do you do that? How, how are you going to stir up one another to love and good deeds? How can you work to encourage one another? What does it mean for you to not neglect the meeting together? How, how is it that you can protect the unity within the body of Christ? And how can you encourage others to protect the unity in the body of Christ? It's a good consideration. Church, let us not be conformed to the pattern and standards of this world that say look out for self, elevate self, Take responsibility only for self. No, let us be transformed by the renewal of our minds to think of others first and to take responsibility for those whom God has sovereignly placed in covenant membership with us. Take responsibility for their spiritual growth and encouragement and further faithfulness to God. But the second part of the body analogy in verse 4 was that the members of our body are all unique and they have different kinds of functions. That's what Paul said at the end of verse 4. The members of that one body do not all have the same function. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 8 to describe some of those functions. Look at that, verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul is talking here about gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The Greek word here, here is best translated grace gifts. This isn't the only place Paul speaks of this. There are three or four other places in the Bible in the New Testament, where Paul describes spiritual gifts. He talks a great deal about them in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, to a lesser degree in Ephesians 4, and here in Romans chapter 12. And from Paul's teaching in these various places on spiritual gifts, we can say that spiritual gifts are, in a general sense, they are supernatural abilities or giftings that are given to believers at the, at the time of conversion, or... They are natural abilities that are utilized in a spiritual way in order to edify, build up, and encourage the body of Christ, the church. Now, we don't have time this morning to dive into all of the details of what these spiritual gifts are and what they mean, much less all of the other gifts, but that is a worthwhile study. And so I've determined to set aside next Sunday to dive just into the gifts themselves so that we can seek to understand how has God gifted us and how are we to employ those gifts in edifying the church. So we're going to do that next Sunday. But for this morning, here's what I want us to see from all of what Paul has said about spiritual gifts. What I want us to see is that we're all not just a bunch of arms. We're not just a bunch of legs that have gathered together. Part of our unity in the church is recognizing that we have not all been gifted in the same way. 
And no single gift supersedes any other or is more important or less important than any other. All of them are essential to the proper working of the body. In fact, I want to go ahead and take a peek at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn there with me if you will. I want to, I want to read a passage of scripture that, that really mirrors what Paul has been talking about in Romans 12. And by the way, Paul wrote Romans while he was in Corinth. And so this teaching on spiritual gifts was fresh on his mind. Having, having delivered this teaching to the Corinthians, who apparently needed it more than the Romans because he talked, used three chapters to teach on it, it was fresh on his mind. And so he, yeah, it makes sense that, that he would speak about it in Romans as well. This passage really speaks to both aspects of what Paul has been teaching about in Romans 12. That the, that, that the unity of the body, that, 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 that there's a unity to the body of Christ, though it has many members, and as well as there's a diversity to the body, because he's given different gifts and different functions. So read with me, look with me beginning at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll read down verse 26. Paul says, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so we see our, our identity there, right? The identity is not as an individual. The identity is we're part of the one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, referring there to both baptism and communion. This is part of why we celebrate these things as a church, as a body of Christ. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together." Now, we're not going to unpack all of that this morning, but that passage really underscores what Paul has been teaching in Romans 12, verses 4 through 8, that our primary identity as believers is not as individual believers. Our primary identity is that we are united together in the body of Christ, the one body of Christ. And consequently, we have a responsibility for one another to care for one another to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to sharpen one another. And secondly, that our unity in the body of Christ is dependent 
on us recognizing that God has sovereignly made us different. And different in lots of ways. Not just in gifting. Certainly we have different gifts, but we also have different experiences, different cultures, different ethnicities, different personalities, different generations, different abilities, and so on. And we all need all of these differences. I mean, how messed up would a church be if all it had was a bunch of Kenruckers, right? You can amen that. <laughs> or if we were a church full of Bodie Jenkins or Chris Holloway, these, I love these guys. Or if we were a church full of Debbie Settles, I love Debbie. But those would not be properly functioning churches. God knew exactly what he was doing. I love the way he put it in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. It speaks to the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in placing people into the body. And he knew what he was doing when he put you in this body, if you're a member of New Branch. He knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knows that this body will not properly function unless you are engaging your gifts and your abilities and your experiences that you're bringing that into the mix as well. So again, next week we're going to dive into all the details of these gifts as well as the other gifts that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Ephesians 4. We're going to dive into all of the details of that, but for now... Let us just accept that God knew what he was doing when he made you a member of this church, when he made us fellow members one of another, and that he wants you to use your gift to edify and build up and encourage and sharpen the body of Christ called New Branch. Let's pray. As we close in prayer, if I was describing you earlier when I talked about those who are not in Christ, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, maybe you've been putting your hope for rescue from the judgment that we deserve because of sin, you've been putting that hope in your ability to be a good person, your ability to try hard to not sin if you've been putting your hope and your faith in attending church or performing religious acts or trying to follow God's word or, or any, anything like that, that means you're not in Christ. You're not robed with his righteousness. And I want you to consider as we close in prayer that it has a very dangerous predicament that you're in this morning because you're still under the condemnation of your sin. You desperately need to be saved. You desperately need to be rescued. And you can't rescue yourself, and I can't, and no other person can rescue you, but God has sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue you. He sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that you could never live, and then he sent him to a cross to die in your place. Will you trust in yourself to try to earn that, or will you trust in Christ who has already achieved that and accomplished that for you? Will you trust in Christ alone? 
Will you turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over your life? If that's the desire of your heart this morning, then I, I would just appeal to you, just as you're sitting there in that chair, to cry out to God, to admit to him that you are hopelessly lost and in your sin you are under the right condemnation because of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Tell him he's your only hope. If you're still wrestling with that, we welcome you to talk with any of us who have been, been up front this morning. Mark it on your Connect card. Let us know how we can encourage you to trust in Christ alone. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of seeing these tangible evidences of your grace as these young people were baptized, putting a stake in the ground, saying that they have trusted in Jesus Christ alone and that they're counting on him to continue to give them the grace to live for you for the rest of their lives. Would you encourage them in that, Lord? And we thank you so much for the encouragement that is to us to see these young people take a stand for your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would protect our unity in our church. Help us to take responsibility for one another, to be willing to love one another, to have the courage to love one another that deeply. And God, may you, may you cause the, the orchestra of the diversity of who we are as a church, our giftings, our abilities, our personalities, our generational differences, our cultural differences. God, may you roll all of that up and orchestrate all of that into a beautiful symphony as the bride of Jesus Christ as we seek to serve you in this world. Transform us as individuals, but most importantly, Lord, transform us as a church to be good representatives and good ambassadors of your son, Jesus Christ, until you come to bring us home or until you come to set up your kingdom here. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.